0: Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk Well, as David said, we're turning for the last time at least uh, temporarily for the last time, to Philippians chapter 4, and the closing section from verse 10 through to the end in verse 23. And you'll find this on page 982 of the church Bible. You should find one either on the window ledge or uh, in front of you. Large print Bible, if you're using it, it's still page 1166. 1166. So let's hear God's Word from Philippians 4 and verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Back in chapter 3, And verse 15, uh, which we slipped over when we were studying chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes a very interesting comment. He says, if you are mature as a Christian, you will think this way. Or, at least in due season, you will learn to think this way. And the implication is that there is a way that mature Christians think. Or to put that in other terms, you can always tell a mature Christian by the way that Christian thinks. I don't think that what is in Paul's mind is that every single Christian thinks the same way about every single thing. That is to say, that, for example, the content of our political convictions will inevitably, as mature Christians, be absolutely identical. What I think he's talking about here, and has actually been talking about all the way through this letter, as we've noted, he uses this verb to think, translated differently in the English Standard Version, he uses it time and time and time again because he has come to the conviction that the way an individual thinks lies at the very heart of the way an individual lives. Remember, as we've seen before, his maxim in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that a Christian's life is transformed by the renewing of their mind. And what he's talking about there, and it emerges, I think, in a beautiful way in this closing passage, is not so much about the intellect as about our our mental and spiritual instincts. That we have similar instincts in the way we think. Reflecting during the week on one of uh, the late William Still's aphorisms and I know some of you remember him, that the mature Christian does the natural thing spiritually and the spiritual thing naturally. In other words, as we grow as Christians, there's there's nothing mechanical about the way we live the Christian life. We haven't been squeezed into A kind of cultic mode of doing things and saying things according to some pattern, some list of rules and regulations that the church has, for some reason or another, invented as the sign of spiritual maturity. The sign of spiritual maturity is that we have developed instincts in the way we think that filter into the way we live in such a way that we do actually begin to do the spiritual thing naturally, instinctively. Our lives take on a kind of biblical pattern, not because we're always thinking there must be a verse in the Bible that tells me what to do here, but because our lives have become over the period, saturated, saturated with the way in which Scripture teaches us to think so that we respond and react to situations in biblical ways without even stopping to ask the question, what does Scripture say? And you'll find some very striking illustrations of that in Paul. Several occasions he responds to a situation by simply saying, God forbid! doesn't stop to think, doesn't give you an explanation, just says, God forbid, my instinct is that view is utterly impossible. And only then will he go on to explain what lies behind that instinct, that spiritual instinct that emerges naturally from his lips and in his life. Now, I say that because these very mundane verses that come at the end of Philippians, they are, they're the kind of verses that for some of us when we get to the end of these letters of Paul, we're thinking, what's the next letter here? Because they seem so mundane. And they're about contemporary situations, not about our situation. They apparently don't have very much theology or doctrine in them, if that's what we're interested in. And they don't tell us to do very much, if that's what we are interested in. But what they almost invariably do is show how deeply what Paul has been teaching in his letter seems to come out through his instincts as he bids farewell to whoever it is that he's been writing to. And if you went through this letter, um, it would be better if you went through this letter in one of those translations that tries to use the same English word every time the same Greek word appeared. You would notice that sprinkled throughout these closing verses are all kinds of echoes of what Paul has been speaking about earlier in the letter and urging upon the Christians in Philippi. The very very qualities he's been urging upon them seem to to press out of the pores of his closing greeting to them. He's, He's urged them to be concerned, And he's thanking them because they have been concerned in verse 2. He's wanted to emphasize their fellowship in Jesus Christ, translated here as partnership. And he emphasizes the fact that what he has longed to see, he actually now sees in their relationship to him. He's spoken about the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ was brought low in chapter 2, and now he's sharing with them how they can, in a Christ-like way, respond to situations like his in which he has been brought low. And he's emphasized the abundance of riches that there are in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I have found that abundance of riches in Jesus Christ brings me contentment. And I believe that God will bring the same to you according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And if you look back to what he had said in chapter 2 verses 1 to 4, which had really introduced the high point of this letter, his desire for these Philippian Christians that they would find encouragement in Christ, that they would find comfort from love, that they would find fellowship in the Spirit, that they would find affection and sympathy, and he's urging them to complete his joy, not because his joy is incomplete, but because actually they've given him so much joy. And so you see, what he's saying at the end here, of course he has put his finger on certain challenges that the church faces. But what's so impressive here is the way, apparently without actually saying it, which sometimes is very wise pastorally, not to say, this is what I'm going to tell you. I am about to encourage you. He flings encouragement on them with both hands that what he has longed to see among them, he actually does see. And this is why at the beginning of the chapter, he had described them as a church that was his joy and crown. So, how do we see this? Well, we see it in several ways. We see it, first of all, because of the fellowship that they all share in Christ. They share a fellowship together in Christ. He's he's thanking them now for the gift, although it's very interesting that he never says, thank you. I I wish my parents had known to recommend this passage to me when I was writing to my aunt for her gift so I could find ways of saying thank you for the pink slippers without using the word thank you. And it's all really very beautiful. But I think the reason, and actually, if you, if you read the commentators, sometimes you should read only one commentator. Uh, you may not be quite right, but you will not be confused. It's amazing the number of critical commentators who complain about the fact that Paul never says thank you. Paul never says thank you. Why does he never say thank you? Because everything he says is actually thank you. But the chief thing that he wants to thank for is is not the money that they've sent to him or even Epaphroditus, whom they've sent to him. Both of these gifts he cherishes, and he makes it perfectly clear. What he's chiefly thankful for is what these gifts say about the nature of their relationship together that these gifts have not been given out of mere duty but out of his out of their care for him and he mentions that doesn't he you you have revived your your concern has blossomed for me is what it really says, and you were concerned for me, but you you didn't have. There were providential reasons you didn't have opportunity to express this in in practical ways, in the financial help you've given to me. And it's not just been a matter of their duty. He's an apostle. We'd better help him. It is that they've understood that this relationship is completely mutual. That Paul has shared his spiritual gifts with them and so they want to respond. You, when, when someone gives themselves to you, unless you want to find yourself in a relationship of unrequited love, then, then that love calls from you, not just a giving, but a, a giving to the person, and it's been so practical. Um, there are little indications actually in Paul's letter to the Corinthians that the Philippians were not exactly well off. And they gave sacrificially and in a costly way. And they did so for one simple reason they wanted to bless Paul in the circumstances he was in. You know. Um, This isn't an ethnic comment. I'm sure it's true elsewhere. One of the things I've found in some Scottish churches is whenever they've done something, the first question on the agenda is, how can we do this as cheaply as we possibly can? How can we do this as cheaply as we possibly can? I learned a great lesson in... I think I was in my 20s. Um, And actually, I was with the said William Still. We were speaking at a conference. And the conference was among people who had what you would call a a charismatic tinge to them. And at the end of the weekend, the, the fellow who organized the whole thing placed a check in my hands that I thought was for my expenses. It was, I think, apart from the time the bank made a mistake and deposited 10,000 pounds in my account that didn't really belong to me. They fixed it as soon as I informed them I didn't think this was really mine. And I said to, I said to the leader of this group, I said, this is far too much. Now, there was a Scottish instinct. <laughs> I've never forgotten his words. Nor have I ever forgotten that I think I first learned this emotionally from somebody with charismatic tendencies. You came here to bless us, and this is one of the few ways we can think of blessing you. And it became a kind of maxim to me in churches to sit down with people who arranged finances, when they were asking the question, how can we do this as cheaply as we possibly can, I'd probably better look into the air in case I accidentally stare at somebody who's involved in the finances of this church. But when we're all asking, how can we do this as cheaply as we can, we have a new minister coming, how can we do this as cheaply as we can? And to say, here's the lesson. He, they, they're coming to bless us And this is one of the most obvious ways in which we can bless them. And Paul had actually, this is a wonderful thing, the Philippians had picked this up clearly so that it had become an instinct in them to be so generous and caring and loving in their commitment to Him. And I think actually the ultimate sign of this bond is not in the money matters, not even in the sending of Epaphroditus, but in this beautiful expression he uses. In verse 14, he says, it was kind of you to share my troubles. It was kind of you to share my troubles. What do I mean by that? I mean by that it was when Paul was in trouble that they bound him to themselves, and bound themselves to him. And that's not a natural instinct. And it's not a natural instinct in many Christians either, to bind ourselves especially to those who are in trouble. Remember how Paul appeals to Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 1, when he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And then he adds on words that I've often thought logically don't seem to belong there. He says, and don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me. Some of us have been Christians long enough to see that when some Christians we know get into trouble, many Christians flee to the margins. And Paul is saying the real indication that new instincts of fellowship have been built into you, that you really share with me in Jesus Christ, is that my troubles have drawn you towards me and not sent you away from me. And what in all this I think is so impressive is that... Basically, as we've worked our way through Philippians, what we've tended to notice is the problems in the Philippian church, the problems in the Philippian church. And the thing about problems in a church is, well, they're like small coins that if you bring them really close enough to your eyes, you can't see anything else. And there's such a tendency, isn't there, and a temptation when, 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 when there is something that needs to be handled in a church, for our our whole vision of our church family to be clouded by the fact that all we see is that irritation in the body, just as we feel that in our own bodies. There's there's irritation or pain somewhere in it, and it can, it can dominate our thoughts. And yet the interesting thing is, when our minds are captured by something else, most of us experience that that pain begins to subside, don't we? We, we forget it was there. And that's what happened here. It's a tremendous challenge to us. If any of us notice anything in our church family life that isn't quite right to guard against this danger that had been wonderfully guarded against in Paul, that we don't see the whole church through the lenses of its problems, but we see the whole church through the lenses of the fellowship the church family shares in Jesus Christ. And the reason that's true for Paul is this. I, I was thinking uh, during the course of the week, I wonder, I wonder what the books on Philippians say. You'll be thinking I should have thought about this at the beginning of the season. I wonder what the books on Philippians say the big idea in Philippians is. And I came to the conclusion most of them are actually wrong. So the dominant two big ideas in Philippians in the books are partnership, fellowship on the one hand, or joy in the other. Now, there's a lot about fellowship in Philippians, and there's a lot about joy in Philippians. But you can talk about partnership and joy, and the name of the Lord Jesus never crosses your lips. And Paul thinks the other way around. Paul thinks, first of all, about how do I see things through the lenses of our union with Jesus Christ? And when I see that, these problems will be resolved, and I will never lose sight of what is really the big picture, which is the sheer wonder that we, a group of sinners in a family, should be so united to Jesus Christ that the instincts of Jesus Himself begin to manifest themselves among us. So, I think this is fairly clear. He wants to emphasize and express the fellowship that they all share in Christ. And then secondly, he wants to emphasize the sufficiency that they all find in Christ. So, this great statement, there's more than one great statement in this little passage, that he has learned to be content in whatever state he finds himself. Some of you read probably Jeremiah Burroughs' great book, The Rare, the rare Gift of Spiritual Contentment. Only he, he ups the ante. He calls it a rare jewel, Christian contentment because presumably he had met so many discontented Christians. What's interesting about what Paul says about this contentment is um, that he had to learn it. Now, you know, we're all wired differently. Some of us are more content kind of people than others. Um, That's true, isn't it? Look, if you've more than one child in your family, you know that, don't you? Or if you're married, you know that. Some of us are wired in one way or the other. Paul is not talking about that natural disposition. He's talking about a contentment that can only be learned. You notice that this is a contentment that can only be learned. My friend Derek Thomas told me a wonderful story about Derek's Welsh, of course. So, this was a story about a Welsh minister to whom a lady in his congregation came and said uh, to the minister, "Um, I'm really, uh, you know, I've become very discontent. I'm struggling with growing in contentment. Oh, he said, we can fix that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, he prayed, please send this sister, some more affliction and challenge and trouble and difficulty. Amen. I think he, I think he put in the name of Jesus there. Amen. She, I said I was struggling with trying to be content. He said, well, yes. That's why I prayed that you would, you would be brought into situations that in their very nature," would by themselves produce discontentment, because you never actually learn contentment unless you're put in a situation that creates discontentment. I mean, to think that that would be the case would be as foolish to think that you could take part in the Olympic weightlifting whenever the next Olympic Games is, without going into a gym between now and then and just walk onto the podium and, you know, lift up the barbells. What produces, by God's purposes, learning contentment is the way in which, by God's grace, we more and more learn how to respond to situations that would cause discontent. And Paul was certainly, in one of them, He's in prison. He's on trial. The, the future he thinks is going to be secure, but he can never be absolutely sure that he's learned contentment in every situation in which he finds himself, and, and the sign of that is, you know, me, if I just had a bit more or things were a bit easier or my brain worked better, then I'd be content. Most of us are like that. But you see, Paul speaks about a contentment in not having, as well as a contentment in having. And I think at the end of the day, one of the things he's saying is that you're not actually content until you know how to manage both of these things. You see that with people who win huge amounts of money, don't you? They would be so content if they had won whatever it was, the jackpot, but since they've never learned to be content when they've had little, they spend and spend and spend and spend in a way that indicates they haven't learned contentment in having a lot. Of course, the reason for this is that we don't find our Christian contentment in the possessions we have or the circumstances that we are in. But we learn that contentment, he says here, through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, I've learned to be content with the sufficiency that He provides. And the interesting thing about that is that Paul says there's a secret to this. There's a secret of learning contentment, and he discloses it, doesn't he? He says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance in need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I played golf with a fellow once who had four thirteen written on his golf ball, and he knew I was a minister. I said, what's that? And he looked at me as though I didn't know my Bible. He said, it's Philippians 4.13. I really wanted to say to him, you know, writing Philippians 4.13 on your golf ball does not guarantee that you're going to win the Open Championship. That's not really what the Apostle Paul is talking about. What he's talking about is our ability to have contentment, not in what we have or don't have, but to be content in either because we have found contentment." in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'd made that clear right at the beginning, he, in chapter 1, to me to live is Christ. You can never find this spiritual contentment, I suspect, until you're able to echo Paul's words, to me to live is Christ. So, he speaks about the fellowship that they share in Christ. He speaks about the sufficiency that they all find in Christ. And then, just in the closing few words, he also speaks about or reminds them, I think, perhaps. He gives them a reminder, a reminder to all of them that every saint In their church family is in Christ. And this, I think, is really pretty interesting. Um, He again echoes motifs that we find earlier on in the letter, but this is perhaps the most instinctive expression of them. Look at the first thing he says greet every saint in Christ Jesus. I read that this week. I thought, ah, yes, this is the bookend. This is exactly what he said at the beginning of the letter. But then I still had enough intelligence to look back to the beginning of the letter to check up, check your facts. And there's a very subtle difference between what he says at the beginning of the letter and what he says at the end of the letter. Beginning of the letter, he greets all the saints. He greets all the saints. But at the end of the letter, you notice, he tells each of the saints to greet every other saint in the church family. It's just like throwing out. Who's he talking to? I'm, I'm talking to you all. Every single one of you, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Wow. Not just the minister at the door. Not just the people I like to sit beside. No, greet every saint. You think Yodhia and Syntyche had managed to just stay in their seats and we're listening to this. So you lot, he's saying, yeah, I've called out Euodia and Syntyche. So when this letter is put back in the, in the guy's hip pocket, um, you go and greet Euodia. But I'm actually with Syntyche. No, you go and greet every saint, not just Yodia at Suntiche. And think what Yodia and Suntiche? I mean, like in one single event, simple event that presumably if this happened here, every one of us would see it, we'd be talking about it. Did you see what happened at the end of the service? Did you see Yodia and Suntiche greeting one another? It's like Paul's equivalent of an altar call to Christian believers, that as they give themselves in this way to one another, their fellowship will be sweetened, their problems will be lessened, their alienations will be wonderfully ended. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, and then the brothers who are with me greet you. And I think there he probably means brothers and not, as the SV keeps reminding us, brothers and sisters. He means my my team. And then he says, all the saints here greet you. And this is interesting because there had been problems in the church in Rome that he had indicated. All the saints here greet you. And then he adds these magical words, especially those of Caesar's household. He's in Rome. He's in the epicenter of the Roman Empire. He is on trial essentially because he says Jesus is Lord. And what for him is a non-political statement because Jesus' kingdom, as he explained to the Roman governor, Pilate, Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. But to Rome, that was a political statement just as incidentally is becoming a political statement or a politically viewed statement in the Western world in our own time. You may say Jesus is Lord under your breath, but you may not behave as though Jesus is Lord because that's a political statement. And uh, as we know, in the future, all hell would be let loose against these Christians in Rome, and they would suffer grievously. But here's this amazing thing. Not all the might of Rome, not all the political powers in the world, not even in North Korea or in other parts of the world, can prevent the penetration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason? Well, Paul had given it to them and to us in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, that God has exalted His Son and given Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that which will be consummated in the future has already begun now, And so there were those, even in Caesar's household, who called Jesus Lord. And it's such an encouragement to the Philippians, they lived in a Roman colony, such an encouragement to us, that since we know of those who live in the darkest and most difficult situations who call Jesus Lord, and since they are our brothers and sisters we may share in the same sufficiency in Jesus Christ. And likewise, wherever we are, what a challenge this is for some of us tomorrow in school or work, something is said, something happens, to take courage from the fact that we belong to this family of saints in Christ who all own the name of Jesus as Lord. And it's because of that wonderful fellowship they share, despite the blips in the screen, that Paul was able to call this church, what we all want to call, whatever church we belong to, my joy and my crown. And so it's good that the letter ends with what enables us to do that, isn't it? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this letter. I thank you for the way in which it comes out of the story of Paul's life, comes out of your call on him, your gifts to him, and the circumstances in which he found himself, and the relationship he had with this church and We understand our own lives have a similar pattern, that we are not here by accident but because You have brought us here, that we are neither humbled nor exalted by accident because You want us to learn contentment, and that what is most important to all of us and to each of us is that we belong to Jesus Christ. It is life for us to live for him, and death will be gain, And therefore, we pray that as we live here, we may live that life that is supremely pleasing to him, and that our church family may express it. So, grant us this grace of which the apostles spoke, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.